Welcome to Sweat the Technique. I'm going to reintroduce myself. My name is Stacey Shells Harvey. I'm the CEO of Regeneration Schools. My organization manages a group of charter schools in Chicago and Cincinnati, which is my hometown. This is a podcast on how to get better faster. We're a group of educators that have had success in developing teachers and leaders. And now we're trying to apply all of those aspects to everyday life. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe, give us a good rating, give us some feedback because we know that's investment in capacity and keep listening because we appreciate you. And today's episode is with Melinda Winner Moyer, the author of How to Raise Kids That Aren't Assholes. And seeing as we live in a society where assholes are arguably taking over and potentially ruining the world, I can't think of a more important topic for parents and educators. And as soon as I got the book, I looked at my three-year-old and I'm like, I'm going to learn something about how to handle the face you've been making at me. So um, I've already started using these techniques. I just want to say that I've already started using these techniques, Melinda, and I've already seen them become effective, especially because my three-year-old is like a three-nager, as they call it. And the tantrums happen and, and we've struggled with how to like respond in the moment and just acknowledging his feelings was just something that I read in your book has helped immensely. And we just started this like a couple of days ago. And so I'm excited to have you here. Melinda is a contributing editor at Scientific American Magazine and a regular contributor and former columnist at the New York Times. She's a faculty member in science, health, and environmental reporting at NYU's Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. And How to Raise Kids Who Are Assholes is her very first book that was published in July of 2021. And she won a gold medal in the 2022 Living Now Book Awards. So congratulations and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Stacey. I'm so excited to be here. Well, let's jump right in. Because I have a toddler, the very first chapter, so many things resonated with me, especially as an educator, but it's about me is the land that I'm living in right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like this morning, he's like, I'm talking to daddy. And I'm like, but we're teaching you to say, excuse me. And <laughs> from your book, I'm like, we're teaching you to say, excuse me, because when you interrupt, it's not always nice. And it makes people feel like you don't care what they're talking about or you're not waiting your turn. So I try to figure out in like toddler like language, the why. And you talk about understanding the language of emotions. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about what that means if their kid, like mine, is in a phase where it's all about me? Yes. So it's really funny because I now have my kids are almost nine and 12. And I have to say that <laughs> there's still a lot of it's all about me at those ages, too. <laughs> and a lot of feelings, a lot of feelings. So mm. I feel like this advice is helpful for many years, <laughs> I have found. So talking about emotions with kids is really powerful and letting kids have their emotions, even, you know, their big, bad, negative emotions. It's kind of counterintuitive because I think as parents, we really don't like seeing our kids upset. You know, it, it pains us. We want them to feel better. And so sometimes we will kind of deny them their feelings. We'll say, oh, no, no, you're fine. You know, calm down. It's okay. You don't need to be this upset. It's not a big deal. You know, and we try to sort of downplay their feelings because we want them to feel better. But what the research really suggests is that 
instead, you know, leaning into their feelings is actually incredibly helpful. So that means like validating, you know, if they're really upset for some reason saying, oh, you, you know, you seem, you seem really frustrated and I can understand why you're frustrated. And, you know, just letting them feel like it's okay that I feel this way and it's not something that I need to fix or that I need to repress or suppress. And talking about feelings as well is very, very helpful for kids. And one of the reasons for this is that there's a direct link between kids' emotional intelligence, emotional literacy, and their ability to be compassionate and generous and helpful with others. And that's because, you know, if you think about it, like if you see a friend across the room who's upset, you really have to understand something about feelings and know what they look like and read your friend's facial expression and body language to understand what feeling they're feeling. Because depending on, you know, if your friend is angry versus embarrassed versus sad, Mm. you're going to want to do something very different to make them feel better. You're going to want to say something different. You're going to want to approach them differently. So really it's crucial for kids to learn, you know, what do different feelings look like? What do different feelings feel like? You know, what are some of the things that I want when I feel that feeling and how can I help my friend who's feeling that feeling feel better? It's just really helpful when we let kids, you know, experience like the full spectrum of emotions and talk about it in terms of helping them become like better friends and more compassionate people and more helpful people. So it's really, really powerful. And everything you're saying really resonates because it's also going to help them become better readers. Yes. Okay. You will understand a character in a book significantly better if your parents are talking to you about emotions, what evokes embarrassment or humiliation? You know, what happened? You know, because problem and solution, that's usually like the key of any juicy narrative story. You know, there's a problem, there's a solution, and then there's the character's thoughts, actions, dialogue, feelings. When we read to my son, we always are asking him like, how does that character feel? How can you tell? And even with little people, they can look at their faces. Like she's angry. Like we've got like the child version of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And uh, my son is really obsessed with like naughty. And he like, is like, oh, but he gets candy from the witch. (laughs) We're like, that doesn't mean she's nice. Like, let's see, you know, but uh, what you're describing it makes so much sense because if you are acknowledging it in them or, or you even mentioned sharing with yourself, like I actually found myself from reading your book saying like, mommy had a really hard day today because something happened that didn't go my way. And so I'm a little sad, but I'll be okay because I know that things will be better tomorrow. And so they learn about what emotions mean and what better opportunity than to acknowledge their emotions or to share your own. And so I thought that was really powerful because there's just some real comprehension things that are important when it comes to just becoming a strong reader. And that leads me to one of my other favorite chapters, which is This Is Too Hard, chapter two, because at our schools, we believe excellence is a habit. And we believe that smart is something that you get. It's not something that you are because we believe in practice, practice, perfect practice. And we call it at-bats. We want kids to have multiple at-bats in different situations so that they can become stronger at skills. And this chapter to me, just like really focused in on motivation matters. And so can you talk to us a little bit about that and some of the common misconceptions that you hit on around what intelligence actually 
is and what leads to success. Absolutely. So this is going to touch on fixed and growth mindset, which there's a whole body of research on growth mindset that was really pioneered by Carol Dweck at Stanford. So if you think about what you're communicating to a kid when you say you're a natural at, you know, ballet, or you're so smart, you're essentially telling them that intelligence and that ability are things that you're born with, like you either have it or you don't. And this creates what's called a fixed mindset where it's very black and white. It's like either you're good at this or you're not good at this. And the problem is, let's say, you know, you tell your kid, oh, you're so good at math, and then they get a bad grade on a math quiz. And suddenly they're like, ooh, maybe what mom told me is wrong. Maybe I'm not good at math. And because they're in this fixed mindset, they think, well, if I'm not good at math, then I'm just never going to be good at math because it's something you're either good at or you aren't, right? And so being in a fixed mindset causes kids to really really despise challenges and failure because to them, challenges and failure are evidence that they aren't good at something and they really don't think that that can change. And so what kids with a fixed mindset start doing is they start making choices to preserve their reputation. They start, you know, deciding that, oh, I'm going to do the easy problems because I don't want to experience anything hard because hard things are a challenge to my sense of ability. And so what we find is that kids who are steeped in this fixed mindset, they end up avoiding challenges. They end up really feeling bad about themselves when they fail at something. And, you know, and they just, they don't think of challenges as something that gets them better at things. Growth mindset is kind of the opposite. And when you foster a growth mindset, you're essentially teaching kids that, you know, challenges and failures are, first of all, very normal and part of life. And that, by experiencing them, we get better at things. And so the idea is that, you know, ability and intelligence aren't these things that you're just born with, or you're not born with, but rather they are things that grow through effort and persistence. And so in order to foster a growth mindset, instead of saying things like, oh, you're so smart, you know, you're so good at math, you're so good at ballet, you instead praise for effort and you tie effort to outcome. So you might say, oh, you did so well in that ballet recital. It must be because you've been practicing so much. You've had so many rehearsals and you've been working really hard. And likewise, if they get you know a good grade on a math test, instead of saying, oh, you're so good at math, you say, you know, I'm proud of you. It must be that you really worked hard or you studied hard. So it's a really powerful. It's just a slight shift in how you praise your kids, but it's very powerful because it really does teach kids that, okay, through effort, through continuing to try, through experiencing challenges, that's how you get better at things and that's how you become smart. So I could not agree with you more. And the praise effort and not skills is so important. We have a set of virtues at our schools, and one of them is diligence. One of them is perseverance. You know, we have compassion, we have responsibility, but when I think about diligence and perseverance and then helping kids understand even the difference between diligence, like diligence, like you get up every day and you do the same thing even when you don't want to because it helps lead to this outcome. And then perseverance, like up against obstacles. Like I'm a person of prayer. I actually pray for my son to have diligence. (laughs) You know, because I'm like, you're going to have to persevere and you're going to have to get up sometimes and do remote things that aren't the most fun. Right. But if you want to get to the outcome, you got to just get up and do it even sometimes when you don't like it. So we also dig deep into and this kind of ties into some other things that you discuss precise praise. And we believe that if we praise very precisely, you know, wow. I'm watching you do this math problem and I noticed that you checked 
your answers each time. And it led to you catching mistakes and then getting it right. So now I'm precisely praising what you did because you got to know what you did well so you can keep doing it, right? And so I really enjoyed reading about the praise, how you speak to children. And then you touched on something too, which is normalizing failure, right? And can you talk a little bit, because it's so hard when you see your kids upset about something and it's so hard to want to swoop in and save kids, but you talk about healthy self-esteem. You talk about your kid not being like the code buzzword, like a narcissist, right? And how does experiencing failure, you know, help with that? So recently, by which I mean, probably in the last couple of decades, decades, parents have really come to appreciate being very involved in their kids' lives. And I understand and it's hard not to be. We want the best for our kids. But sometimes what we end up doing is we end up, you know, hovering over our kids and stepping in when our kids are experiencing even just like the slightest discomfort or the slightest challenge, we jump in and we want to fix things for them. We want to, you know, we want to take, again, it's about like being uncomfortable with our kids' negative feelings. We don't like seeing our kids frustrated or, you know, embarrassed. And so we want to jump in and we just want to rescue them. And it's totally well-meaning and, you know, we do it because we love our kids, but ultimately it holds our kids back because, you know, if you think about it, what we're doing as parents and educators is we're preparing our kids for the world that they are going to be facing every day as adults. And hard things are part of life and challenges and, you know, failures are part of life. And so we want to give kids the practice and the skills to be able to manage those difficult moments. If we as parents are taking those moments and opportunities away from our kids, then they never get to learn how to get through a difficult moment. So we see it all the time. Like our kids will forget their homework and we will drive it into school because we don't want them to feel that terrible feeling of having to tell their teacher that they forgot their homework, you know? And, you know, when my daughter once called from a sleepover and she was like, I'm not having fun. Can you pick me up? And I, you know, ended up like staying on the phone with her and talking her through and figuring out what was wrong and realizing like, if she could actually get through this, then she will be in a much better place than if I go pick her up and rescue her right now. So there's all these little ways that we can do it. But we also know from research that when we do jump in and help our kids, our kids sometimes interpret that as evidence that we don't have faith in them. So there were some studies done where researchers asked kids, you know, how do you feel when your parents jump in and help you with homework when you're struggling with your homework? And they said, it makes me feel like my parents think I can't do my homework. And it's really frustrating. And so what we find is it also undermines their self-esteem ultimately, because we are kind sending this message of like, you don't got this, you can't handle this, like you're too weak. And we don't want to be doing that either. So it's hard. It's really hard. But in those moments where we want to jump in and fix things for our kids, if we can just take some breaths and think about, you know, is there something different I could do here? Could I just encourage them or scaffold them so they can get through it themselves? That is often a much better way forward. That's interesting. My mom, she's a retired principal from Cincinnati Public. And because she was an educator and because she watched parents fight for their kids, she would give me advice. I kind of like what you described with your daughter, but insisting that I try it out, you know, insisting like, you know, if you try and you still haven't, you know, then I'll help you. But she gave me advice in those situations. You know, I remember being in like a big fight with a best friend because they happen. And my mom saying to me, like you said, kind of normalizing it, like, well, friends fight. I remember the first time she said that to me and I was just like, but, but she said this to me. And she's like, but friends fight. And 
actually, they're not your real friend if you don't sometimes not get along. She's like, if someone's just always getting along with you, then chances are that there might be some type of power differential there, you know? And so real friends fight. And just hearing her say that normalized that it's okay for us to not agree and that we can resolve this and we can get past it. And so that kind of leads me to an area of the book that I know you had research from like 2018 around cyberbullying, but post pandemic, I think that we've seen cyberbullying just take root in a way that wasn't going on. I can honestly say as an administrator in 2018, we sent kids home, we shut down schools and kids went to social media in ways that they never, they were always on social media because it's not going anywhere, right? But after the pandemic, every time there was a fight and like an argument, something that required like more, we were just tracking the reasons. And the reasons were all going back to things on Instagram, things in text messages, even like creating fake Instagram pages. Like one of the schools is called Avalon, like Avalon tea. Like they call that like tea sipping, like the gossip, the tea. And, and when I say bullying, I like your definition of it's repeated. It's not like someone said something about you once. It's not your kid didn't get invited to this birthday party. Well, that's a shame, but that's not bullying, right? Like kids getting repeatedly targeted and humiliated on a repeated basis online and then doing so anonymously because you don't have to let it be known. And then I also find that kids find it a lot easier to do things, even adults. I mean, look at the way adults attack people in comments online. Back when I was growing up, there was no internet, you know? There was no internet for me until I graduated from college. So if you wanted to be a bully, you had to be in somebody's face. You couldn't be a bully from home into somebody else's home. And so kids now have the veil and the protection of the computer to kind of be mean in ways that we haven't seen before. And it's just interesting. You talked about kids getting practice, right? One of the things that I found is that kids aren't getting practice at bats like they used to around like not getting along or at bats that they're getting, it's like online and it's trying to create authentic moments for kids to have authentic opportunities to build friendship, for friendships to go awry, to repair friendships that's not like online, you know, where you're not attacking someone online, where if you're having a disagreement, you're not doing it over a text message, which is a lot easier to say nastier things than you would say when you have to see their face or really deal with, as we talked about before, their emotions and how you make someone feel. So you started off that chapter in a really interesting and counterintuitive way, which is instead of saying, this is what you do when your kid is getting bullied, you said, this is what you do to either keep your kids from being a bully, or if you find out your kids are a bully, this is what you do. You did get to the inevitable, right? Your kid's getting bullied. Can you talk to us about what parents should be thinking about, what parents should be doing? Yeah, it was really interesting as I was reporting this chapter because I did want it to focus on what can parents do to not raise bullies themselves. But every time I engaged with the issue with like other parents, you know, I went to a talk, I opened the chapter with a big panel talk I went to that the title of the panel was Raising Kind Kids. And when they opened up the panel to questions, every single question was, what do I do when someone else is being unkind to my kid? It was (laughs) never about how do I raise kind kids? And I think obviously, 
obviously we love our kids and we don't like to think that they're going to make mistakes, but we really do a disservice to them when we assume that our kids can't engage in bullying and can't be unkind. And I think part of the reason for this is because we often have these ideas about what bullies are and who bullies are that really aren't accurate. And I I really delved into that in the book where You know, we think of bullies as these just like nasty people. They're just down to the core bad people and they're always bullying. And we think, well, my kid isn't a bad person and my kid isn't always bullying. Not my kid. Not my kid. Yeah. And so we think, well, then they can never bully. If they're not a kid who's always mean, then they're probably never mean. And we make that jump, but that's not accurate because what we find is that bullying really is a spectrum in many Mm -hmm. ways. Like there are kids who will bully a little bit one day and then be bullied the next day. There are kids who, you know, are sort of on the sidelines of bullying, supporting a bully, but aren't Mm. actually being really active about it. There's also a lot of evidence that there are kids who engage in bullying who really truly don't understand the ramifications of what they're doing. They lack a skill called theory of mind, which is essentially the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes and to take their perspective. And a lot of kids who engage in bullying, they haven't fully developed that skill. And they really just, you know, they think they're being funny. They think everybody's having fun and they don't really get like just how harmful their actions are. And so I think as parents, we have to keep that in mind that, you know, we can have wonderful kids and yet still sometimes our kids are going to do things that might be considered bullying sometimes. And so we need to be, you know, aware of that and willing to have conversations with our kids and willing to, you know, when the principal calls, which has happened to me as well and (laughs) says, your kid did something on the school bus to not just immediately jump into defensive mode and say that couldn't have happened, you know, no, 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 that's not my kid, but to really sit with it and think, you know, maybe this really did happen and I need to have a conversation with my child about it. So I think just changing that mindset as a parent is really, really important. It is because like somebody's doing the bullying, you know, like everyone's like, not my child. (laughs) It's somebody, somebody is doing the bullying. And like you said, there's different levels to it. There's the like, I'm cheering from the sidelines with the bully or I'm laughing you know, and enjoying, I may not be doing it directly, but I'm on the sidelines and I'm laughing. And speaking of the sidelines, when you're talking about what to do, because like not every kid is going to step up and be like, Hey, step back. You know, you talk about kids supporting also from the sidelines. So if you see someone being bullied, then what you should do is like, if you're not comfortable, you know, not every kid's going to be comfortable stepping in, but how you talk to that child, how you support that child, someone that you see being treated horribly and how you can help them. Because kids doing that could be the difference in a child going home and committing suicide versus a child who now has some hope and recognizes that A, it wasn't okay and that other people recognize it and I'm okay. You know, just being nice. It goes a long way. That's huge. You also talked about authoritative parents. Like when is it okay? And then when is it overboard? Yes. So parenting style. uh, Yeah, I had a whole chapter on parenting style, which is essentially like the atmosphere and environment that you create at home and the way that you interact with your child. And there's a bunch of research on parenting styles. And There are essentially three really big ones that most parents will fall into. The first one is permissive parenting, which is exactly what it sounds like, which is, you know, parents who, you know, the kids kind of rule the roost. The parents aren't really setting a lot of rules, a lot of boundaries. The kids, you know, go to bed whenever they want. They kind of do what they want. And we know that kids who are raised 
by permissive parents, they don't tend to do great. They tend to develop some problems over time. And the other parenting style that's not associated with the best outcomes is called authoritarian parenting. And this is like the parents in Mad Men. This is kind of old school (laughs) parents where it's like you expect your kids to be seen and not heard. If your kid says, why do I have to clean my room? You say, because I said so. You know, there's really no explanation. There's no negotiating. Often these parents are not particularly warm. They might punish kids harshly. And we know that those kids also struggle, a lot of them down the line with self-esteem issues, with behavioral issues. So what we've found from research is really the ideal parenting style is called authoritative parenting. So I hate that the two words are so similar, not authoritarian, but authoritative. And this is kind of like a Goldilocks approach. It's like a little bit of like a mix between permissive and authoritarian, but not exactly a mix, but where, you know, as a parent, you do still have rules and expectations and boundaries that you set with your kids, but you're also warm and loving and you're willing to negotiate and you provide explanations for your kids, you know, you're just really treating them with respect. So when they say, why do I have to clean my room? You know, you're not saying because I said, because so. I said, so you're saying, <laughs> that's what I heard. Yeah. <laughs> that's what my parents told me. I know. Right. I know. It's, <laughs> yeah. Authoritarian parenting was very popular. I think when we were growing up and now it's shifted a little in the good direction, Yes, except sometimes a little too far in the permissive direction, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, you're kind of striking this balance between, you know, yes, you have these rules and you have these expectations, but you're also treating your kids with respect and you're willing to negotiate sometimes, willing to have conversations about the rules, et cetera. And we find kids from, you know, raised by those kinds of parents really do well in all sorts of areas, you know, academically, emotionally, they have more solid relationships, they have fewer behavioral problems, et cetera. And you mentioned that these are the types of kids who tend not to bully as much because they have the guidelines. Like the rules are clear, like being very explicit about, you know, what are the rules? Like you said, the respect, the negotiation, the boundaries, but the why. And so that leads me a little bit deeper into the bullying because you've talked about what parents should do. And one of the things that you told parents not to do is like exactly what my parents used to tell me to do. And I like laughed when I saw it. I was like, I know that's right. Because my parents were like, you better fight back, (laughs) right? My parents are like, put your dukes up. Let me show you how. I remember my mom told me once, you go to that girl and you tell her, I'm not scared of you, right? And you, (laughs) for very good reason, you warn parents against this. Can you talk to us a little bit why? Because people are like, what do I do? And like in the old school, there are a lot of parents. And I told you, my mother was a principal. And, you know, as a principal, I used to have moments where I used to look at parents like, tell them to fight back. But I realized it's not, you know, because like parents will come to the school and I'm like, I can't be in every single part of the school day with your child. At some point, you do have to give your children some strategies. So that's probably the thing you said you would err against the most. Don't tell them to fight back and why. Yes. So bullying really involves a power differential between the kid who's bullying and the kid who's being bullied. And so it really doesn't work to tell your kid who's being bullied to fight back because, you know, there is this power difference. It can be physical, it can be emotional, but it's really hard to fight back against a bully. And often that will just make things worse. And so there is data on that, that usually it just makes things worse. The other thing that I caution against this is more for parents, but Mm -hmm. I know a lot of parents, you know, they hear that their kid is being bullied and they immediately think, well, I'm going to call up 
the bully's parents right now and I'm going to give them a talking to. And that also often backfires. <laughs> yeah, you, like, Where do you think they learned it from? <laughs> like, apples don't fall far from the tree. Like, you know, call there and get cussed out. Right. And I mean, yeah. even if the parents are reasonable parents, they're still going to be immediately on the defensive. On the defensive. You said Houston did what? Well, what did your child do? <laughs> well, have you talked to your child about what they did to Houston two weeks ago that you didn't know about? Right. Right. It rarely helps. I mean, unless you happen to have a very good relationship with those parents already right. and you feel that you can have a conversation about it with them, most of the time it is just not a good idea to call the parents. Because yeah. you're going to be emotional too. And yes. when you, especially because you mentioned like, and if you do do it, make sure you're calm, you know, because yes. in the moment you're going to just pick up the phone in schools we have parents reach out to us and ask us for the telephone numbers of other parents, which we don't give. And we have them ask us to mediate and bring both parents in. And we don't do that either. And the reason why we don't, and I know there are places that do, but we just aren't equipped for what could potentially happen. It's like, let's say there's a fight, you know, like heaven forbid, but kids fight at schools. It happens, Right. We have to make sure that if we're calling parents to pick their kids up, that we have them coming to different entrances of the school building, as opposed to coming in the same door and then like your child and da da da, and then it's a big blow up in the main office. And we're not equipped to break up adult fights. You know, our social workers and school psychologists have gone to school to work with children, not adults. We can help a parent understand, here's what we've discussed. Here's what we're going to do about it. You know, here are the questions that we've asked. Here's the support we're going to provide your child if they're experiencing this. And we're going to make sure another parent is aware as well, but we have to walk a very fine line. And so I thought that was really good advice. Now, one of the things that I thought was interesting is that with schools, a lot of times we find ourselves in situations where we feel like we have to mediate between kids, but you suggest for schools that mediations with schools can be risky as well. Yeah, I think basically mediation works when you have people who are sort of on the same level in terms of like power. It doesn't work so well when you have a situation in which one kid is in a very different sort of power hierarchy than the other. And bullying is often, as I said, characterized by this like power differential. Mm -hmm. So it's really not about like, how can we get along better because, you know, mediation also expects that like both sides are kind of needing to work on, you know, what they've been bringing to the relationship. And with bullying, it really is pretty one-sided. And so mediation can be hard. That is a good point. You talk about restorative approaches and curriculum that is consistent around restorative approaches, social emotional learning, and that schools should look into systematic approaches. And we've just implemented the past two, almost three years, the positivity project. And that's a social emotional learning curriculum. The founder, who is somebody who I absolutely adore, and he did a lot with ethics. And so he created like 36 different virtues that has like interactive curriculum that is really looking at this virtue in real life, in school settings. And then it's asking the kids really thought-provoking questions that they can discuss in a class. And that's 15 minutes at the beginning of the day each morning. And then in our middle schools, at the end of each class period, we ask what virtues did we earn and which virtues did we not earn? And we do that every day, like six class periods a day, fifth through eighth grade. And 
sometimes people say like, they think that it's just like this empty exercise, but I'm like, no, just like therapy, social emotional learning takes time and it has to be executed with fidelity. Like those 15 minutes have to be happening in every classroom, kindergarten through eighth grade, every single day. Those conversations have to be happening at the end of every class period, every single day, fifth through eighth grade, so that hopefully by the time they're in seventh grade and there's something that's happening, that they have a toolbox of resources and they're thinking about how these things all apply. And we are seeing it work, but then schools also have these situations where, and then you had a kid who transfers into eighth grade for the very first time, you know, who hasn't been there kindergarten all the way through. And so, yeah, I would say for parents who are experiencing bullying, have kids that may be doing the bullying, talking to your school, because you mentioned like, you know, making the school aware, asking them, are their approaches effective and consistent, you know, because schools do have to be held accountable as well. And then, you know, just asking yourself, do I have a bully? Is my kid aware? Because I think that schools could use as much help as we can right now. Kids have spent, they spend a lot of time at home. And I know everyone thinks like COVID is over, but the ramifications are playing out on the ground floor at schools every single day. And so I just thought that this particular chapter I thought was really, really useful. Everything tied together, by the way, like from emotions, you know, in the very beginning to this, I mean, it just all weaves together so perfectly because you have to understand, you mentioned there are some kids who are bullies who just don't understand the ramifications. But the more you're talking to kids about their own feelings, the more they can have that mindset and putting themselves into another person's shoes. So I really think that you have beautifully web these things together. They all build really well and they're interchangeable. There's so much that we could talk about. And if you don't mind, <laughs> I, mean, I could I could talk to you about this forever. And I actually talked to my husband. He was like smiling because I like, we like wake up and then we do books in the morning with my son. And I'm like, oh, I'm reading this book and there's these chapters I want you to read. But can you talk about, I believe it was chapter seven, her skin looks dirty how to raise kids who aren't racist, because we are in a society right now where we are seeing things happen. I won't say more than the past because we, we've made some advancements. Like my mom is 82. She drank from separate water fountains. She sat at the back of buses. She was a Spelman graduate college student and marched with Dr. Martin Luther King. And have we made advancements since then? Yes, we have, right? But chapters like the one that's written in your book I felt like it was very powerful because first of all, you acknowledge that you were writing primarily to white parents. You acknowledge that, hey, like I'm not in a situation to tell black parents necessarily, you know, but you stood in your identity very well. And you started off by talking about like, because when I was growing up, the phrase that paid for anyone who wanted to say they weren't racist is like, I'm colorblind. I'm colorblind. I don't see color. And people didn't understand how harmful that was. So if you could just talk to us a little bit about that. And then as a parent, because you talk about like, you're not trying to shame your kids, but just acknowledging, you know, can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, what advice you would give for a parent who this is their value and they want to make sure that their kids are good people when it comes to racism and prejudice? Yes. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I also wrote to white parents primarily is because white parents really have a lot to learn in this regard. This is one of those areas of parenting where, you know, the research often contradicts what we think is best. And so a lot of white parents, as you said, you know, they really think like, well, if I want my kid to not be racist, then I shouldn't talk about race and skin color. And that if I talk about it, it's going to make it real to them and it's going to make them make judgments based on it. And so 
you know, parents who are thinking that colorblindness is a good approach, I think that they mean well. They do. They do. Yeah, they Mm -hmm. really do. But the problem is it's not representative of how kids' brains work. So what we know is that kids are, they're like little social detectives. They are constantly looking around the world, trying to make sense of what they're seeing and trying to understand what social categories matter and why. And one of the things they notice pretty quickly is that there are very different power hierarchies depending on the color of a person's skin. So they will look around and say, gosh, it's really interesting. You know, all but one of our presidents has been white and everybody's been a man. That's another another conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, gosh, yeah, a lot of people in positions of power in general in our country are white people. And the opposite is true maybe of black and brown people. And they will observe this and they will try to figure out why, right? And they're like, well, why is it that so many white people have so much power? And if we don't explain that racism is why so many white people have power, then they are going to make you know the obvious conclusion, which is, oh gosh, maybe white people are just better and smarter and inherently more powerful and deserving. So we absolutely have to get in there and interrupt that process of, you know, the kids looking around at the world and then making inferences because the inferences they're going to make are racist inferences and sexist for that matter too. So it's actually very important for us to talk about racism and also to talk about skin color. Cause the other thing that happens is, you know, skin color, we know that kids see it and we know mm-hmm. they see it from when, the time oh, they're babies. Yes. yes, they do. And when we as parents don't talk about it, when we just like never, ever mention it, that becomes a signal to kids. Like there's this thing in the world that everybody can see and nobody will talk about it. And they'll think, well, this is like extra important then because nobody is talking about it. It's like a secretive bad thing. It's a secretive bad thing. Yeah. yeah. So they start thinking of skin color as this like secretive bad thing and that maybe people with darker skin are bad. I mean, it's just, it can go off the rails. And so... It's really hard, I will say. For white people who have been socialized to never talk about race, it can be very uncomfortable and hard to talk to kids about race and skin color. But it's really, really important. And it's important to just normalize our kids noticing it. You know, if if you're in a grocery store and your kid says, wow, that woman's skin is so dark, you know, often our instinct is to shush them and say, no, 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 you can't say that. Don't talk about that. We don't talk about skin color. And, you know, that's sending a signal again that skin color is something bad. Instead, we want to, you know, say, yes, she does have darker skin than we do. Yes. You know, right. Everybody has different colors of skin. That's wonderful. And so instead of, you know, shushing our kids and making them feel ashamed for talking about these things that are things that they're going to notice in the world, we should, you know, just sort of calmly validate it. Yes. Yes. People have different skin colors. It's amazing. You know? Yeah. And that really resonates with me because the truth of the matter is our children have to deal with it, whether they want to or not. And we have to raise our children to understand the power dynamics. They have to have what I call the defenses to detect racism. And it doesn't mean that everything that happens to you is because of the color of your skin. You have to have the defenses to detect what is and what isn't. Because if you don't, then you will attribute it to yourself, which will then tear down your self-esteem. I really did appreciate the strategies that you gave parents because we're giving our children strategies as a matter of survival. And so it may be uncomfortable. It's like uncomfortable versus like survival, you know? And so it just was very powerful. Everything in your book was really powerful. 
everything was really science-based. And I noticed that you have a background in molecular- Molecular biology, Molecular yes. biology. Yes. And so I noticed that like all your awards are within like psychology and health. And this is not just Melinda giving us her opinion. <laughs> this is you <laughs> taking what you've learned, but also applying the research because science matters. But you really did the research which made this book really, really powerful. So this is Melinda Winner Moyer with the book, How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. So I think that most parents, this is a goal. Like parents don't want for their kids to be bullies. They don't want for their kids to cause other people harm. And I just want to thank you because this is a science-based book on better parenting. So thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much, Stacey. I loved chatting and thank you for the very kind words about the book. Ah, you deserve them. So thank you.